Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center singer-composer Arthur Hakeem Stokes, best known as a core member of the funk disco band Platypus. The Dayton, Ohio-based group released two albums for Casablanca Records in 1979 and 1980. While falling short of generating the radio airplane record sales they had hoped for, over time, Platypus has won over many fans, who've been exposed to their unique blend of funk, disco, soul, Latin, and even progressive rock influences. The group also served as a launching pad for Dana Myers, who was a principal songwriter for Solar Record Axe. More recently, Platypus has resurfaced with unreleased music from the early 1980s. Arthur Hakeem Stokes, welcome to the show. How are you? I am wonderful. Uh, happy New Year to you, Scott, and thank you so much for having me. A pleasure. Where are you today? I am in Dayton, Ohio. They call it the Gem City. And I don't know if that's because it sits on top of Cincinnati, and they call that the Queen City. So I don't know if we're part of the crown or what. <laughs> but Dayton, Ohio, um, just chilling. Uh, we've been blessed with some decent weather in January, and I'm always okay with that. Uh, yeah. um, just chilling. and glad uh -huh. to well, glad to have you, and, uh, you know, it'll be a few weeks before folks see this, but as we're talking, the uh, Bengals are coming off a playoff win, so I don't know if you root for them, but I assume you Well, do. I, I, I jokingly tell people I was coaching last night. You might have <laughs> saw me on the sidelines, you know. Uh, I, I've been a, a, a Bengal uh, supporter for a long time, and I, um, you know, I'm happy for them. They're, um, this is <laughs> it's just wonderful because... They used to call them the bungles, you know, and uh, <laughs> because they may have a game and look like they're winning and they would do something to not win the game, you know. So they've turned that around and that's that's great. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's great for the city. And I know uh, last night, although they didn't show it, they had some funk at halftime. 
with uh, Lucy and Ohio players. So that was very cool. Yeah, that was really cool, you know. And and what's interesting, I don't even know anymore. They used to kind of peep at halftime entertainment or whatever, but they kind of give it to the um, the commentators that's doing the game, and they talk about all the other scores and that. And so when they get back, all the music or whatever is over. Yeah, unless it's a Super Bowl, it seems that's about exactly the only time. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Well, uh, Hakeem, let's get rolling. I want to uh, you know test your memory banks and go okay. way back to the all early right. days. So right. uh, you know, um, now you're in Dayton. Now, were you born in Dayton? I assume so. Born in Dayton, Ohio. That's right. Um, and went to school here. Graduated from high school, Roth High School. A lot of people came out of Roth. This has been the funk music capital of the world. Uh, a lot of people came out of Roth and Roosevelt. And we had uh, Dunbar, uh, where the uh, primary three black uh, West Side high schools back in the day. And all of them contributed to bringing forth someone uh, to be one of the uh, uh, funk bands that has gone on to be known around the world. And for you, when did music, you know, become so central and important to your life? You know, Scott, that's, that started when I was young. I used to watch the, uh, um, you know, um, Dick Clark, American Bandstand. That used to come on, um, you know, um, in the afternoons on Saturday. Used to like to watch the artist. Uh, I've been singing ever since I can remember, you know. And, um, yeah, so, and then my brother, Otha, I have two brothers that were very much in music. Otha Stokes was a tenor sax player. He's passed on. But, uh, you know, um, watching him do his thing, you know, through school, playing in the high school band, joining bands. He ended up leaving town and after he graduated and got with James Brown and toured with him. He also toured with Millie Jackson, uh, Ray Goodman and Brown, who used to be the moments, you know, and um, he uh, he also uh, toured um, with the Sugar Hill Gang when they came out with Hotel Motel Holiday Inn, you know. And then I got my young brother, Otis Stokes, uh, with Lakeside, um, lead guitar, um, producer, lead vocalist background. So um, all of that, I think Otha probably influenced me and Otis a lot. Mm -hmm. And so growing up in that, you know, just hotbed of, of music and funk and um, such an amazing history, you know, um, who do you remember seeing early on that kind of impressed you? I mean, did you see the Ohio players early on or people like that? Absolutely. I, as a young guy, they, there was a club here called the Ebony Club on West Third Street, and they would hit the road and they would come home and they would play there. And at the time I was because I knew um, one or two of the club owners and we we did some gigs. I was with a group called the Four Corners and they would we was underage, but they would allow us to come in to perform. And, uh, was, you know, and he would let sometime I could come down and he would let me in if certain people were there like the Ohio players. And they were one of the early bands that I learned um, to uh, put on a show. You know, they wasn't a jukebox, you know, generally. And what do I mean by jukebox? You know, the, the music comes to an end. Nah, 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 dunt, nah, 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 dunt. But they would they had a way of connecting the songs together to keep everything moving. And I all I, I learned 
that was one of the early things I noticed because being young, we was ending the songs, you know, going to the next one. So yeah, I saw the Ohio players and um, it was a group used to come through here called Smoke, Heat and Fire. And Carl McDaniels, who went on to be with the, um, um, oh my goodness, uh, they were the Night Lighters, uh, uh, and then they um, New Birth. Thank you, uh, New Birth. He went on to be with the Night Lighters in New Birth, and he used to play with Smokey and Fire. And the lead singer with Smokey and Fire went on to um, be the lead vocalist with uh, Smiling Faces. Sometimes Undisputed Truth. Yes, Undisputed Truth. Thank you. So um, yeah, you you know, I, I saw a lot of people and uh, grew up with the talent shows and things like that um, from the high school. So we saw a lot of talented people. What about James Brown? Did you see him young as well? That was the first, you know, Scott, that was the first major uh, uh, entertainer that I saw first uh, live. He was at the Memorial Hall. I was working at a grocery store called Liberal Markets. I was a cashier, probably about 17, 16, 17 years old. And I had bought a ticket and I caught the bus downtown uh, by myself, you know, and went in, got off work, didn't even go home and change clothes, just got on the bus and went down and uh, saw his performance. And it was electrifying. And once again, uh, as a young up, up and coming uh, musician, entertainer, was able to see some things that helped me to grow. So the four corners. You know, how did that come together? And, you know, tell us a little bit about that experience. The Four Corners uh, was a high school, intermediate school uh, group and um, made up of, I think the early days was Eli Williams, Floyd Weatherspoon, myself, uh, Harold Bryant, Dana Myers. We all basically went to Rob High School. And that's where um, I really kind of got serious about singing with a singing group and appreciating singing with a singing group. Um, and some of the early um, uh, talent shows, I might have sang by myself, but I kind of found out that I was a, um, a group kind of guy, you know, yeah. So you guys were doing a, a doo-wop or soul or both? or doo kind of soul, all of the above, you know. Uh, we was doing the Temprees and, uh, wow, of course, the Temptations, the Impressions, the Miracles. Uh, yeah, all of those groups. Uh, oh, yeah, um, Intruders, Cowboys to Girls, you know. Um, so, yeah, that's what uh, uh, we... Got going doing that, and that we kind of cut our teeth on a lot of that stuff. Watch them on TV, always looking for something that you can grow from or steal and do it, you know. Did you guys cop the uh, choreography at all, too? Some of those moves that the other group yeah. did? Yeah. Choreography, you got that. Sometimes some little arrangements, background vocal things that they might do, you know. Um, and all that did, you might borrow some stuff to use but you would as you grow that just sparked your own creativity to come up with some of your own stuff later mm -hmm. 
what's interesting, most of the people that whenever they had a hit song and you saw them live, they would add something to it. They would lengthen the song. They would do something that with the song that you didn't hear, you know, on the record. And those were great, sometimes great additions to what they did. And the name came from where? Four Corners. Wow. You know, we were called the Emeralds. And I think now I didn't kind of forgot, but I'm going to say based on it was four of us singing, you know, that's probably where the four thing came from, you know. But uh, yeah, the four corners, we spelled it with a C at first and then we changed it to a K, you know, to, for corners. But the, I w- I'm going to say that that's probably where it came from. Not really sure who came up with the name. And I understand you guys did cut a single. and We uh, did. And you don't moved send, moved uh, to don't LA, right? Say that again, please. And, and I said you cut a single and you also moved to Los Angeles. Yes. Uh, we cut a single called Don't Send Me Away. Now, one of the rare songs that Otis Williams of The Temptations did the lead on. And um, the other side was Mad About the Girl that Floyd Weatherspoon wrote and I sang the lead on it. And... Um, yeah, so that was one of the first um, recordings. And you know what's interesting, Scott, and you probably know this. Back in the day when somebody had a record, it was a big thing because you really had to go jump through some hoops to get to that finished product. You know, you had to go somewhere. We went to Cincinnati to record that. Um, if there was a, a, a recording stations, uh, uh, studios in the Dayton area at that time, I wasn't aware of. And Cincinnati being the bigger city, um, we went down there to record at Jewel Studios. Now you can, everybody's recording in their basement or their car or wherever and putting it out. And you can put it out yourself where you had to go somewhere that pressed up the stuff in the whole nine yards. So it was a big deal. These days when people say they got a record, it's like an accomplishment, but it don't carry the same kind of meaning back in from back in the day yeah yeah so um did you move to los angeles after that is that what the how things went or yes uh we went to la after that in fact let me see we recorded don't send me away i'm going to say about 1970 and we went to la in 73 and um, that's where that, and we ended up changing the name from Four Corners to Platypus. Uh, that's after we met Sandy Newman and uh, Beverly Smolin, uh, who two la- ladies who ended up uh, managing us. And Sandy Newman, who passed on, may she rest in peace, within the last maybe couple of years, at the time she was uh, managing the Barquets. She was managing Albert King, the uh, blues um, player, and she was also managing Lenny Williams, who uh, was singing at that time with Tower of Power. And did that happen, at least in part, because Roberta Flack had championed you guys? or No, this was before Roberta. Oh. Yeah, this was, this was when we uh, first got to L.A. in 73, I was up on uh, on Hollywood Boulevard. We was in some shop. It was me and a couple of other guys. And me being the people person that I am, you know, we just talk. I just talk to people and ended up Sandy Newman was in the store. 
and uh, got into a conversation. And that's how uh, we met. And she expressed some interest in finding out more about us and what have you, what she did. And she ended up managing us for a few years. So was she the one that helped you guys, you know, tour and travel? And Well, she was instrumental. Um, we went, I think the first place we went was to Vancouver, Canada for a New Year's Eve gig. That had to be 73 coming into 74. Let me get that right. Yes. And then um, with her, we did some other, uh, actually going to Australia was, we were with Sandy and uh, going to Japan, I believe. No, maybe after, maybe by Japan, we might have not been with Sandy, but I know going to Australia, she was, at least had a hand in that. Yeah. You guys ended up crossing paths with people like Fifth Dimension and, um, well, mentioned yeah. the flag, but Thelma Houston, and I have Diana Ross down here. And Well, that, uh, that story uh, also was uh, from LA. Uh, Hal Davis, who was a uh, producer songwriter for the Jackson Five and Michael Jackson. He also produced um, Love Hangover for Diana Ross, which is a uh, Thelma Houston, Don't Leave Me This Way. He did some things on Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross. Well, he was from Cincinnati. And we had met a gentleman uh, in Dayton, Ohio, in our um, high school years, senior year probably, uh, Levinsky Allen. Um, he's known as Vinny Allen and Vinny and Hal Davis grew up in Cincinnati together and they, uh, was in a singing group. Well, as people grow up, uh, Hal split up and went to LA. He worked with, uh, uh well, he actually went to Detroit first. He worked, um, he, he, I just found out, uh, I've been, had known him a long time and found out he did, um, Brenda Holloway, every little bit hurts, every night I cry, every night. I... And I said, that was Hal Davis. That was one of the early things he did for Motown. And um, when Motown ended up going to um, L.A., they had him go out to help set up the West Coast offices, you know. So um, and then that's how we met uh, Hal through Vinny. And uh, we played some of our music for him. He liked a couple of the songs and went on and recorded those. Uh, and then once we got to L.A., we, of course, uh, after having met him back in Dayton uh, through Vinny, we uh, went to his offices and he was kind enough to start using us for background vocals and things for Diana Ross, Thelma Houston, Fifty Mention and that kind of stuff. So that's how that all came together. And um you know, how was a, a great mentor to me. Um, one of the things that helped me, I never played an instrument and I still don't, but I, I learned to know what I want to hear, you know, and that's what I found out after working with Hal. Hal never worked, uh, um, used a, uh, an instrument. He knew what he wanted to hear. And in fact, I got a card somewhere in the archives, one of his business cards. It was a Motown card, but he had a big giant ear on there. And that just let, I let everybody know he know what he wanted to hear. And he did play an instrument. And that helped me as I moved forward 
I know what I want to hear. You know, if it, I might not be able to tell you the chord, but I know that ain't the chord I want to hear, you know. And um, just hearing little magical things, somebody might do a guitar riff. You learn to, if it stands your ears up like dog ears, you know, you know, that's must be that's something special. Yeah, do that again. I like that, you know, those kind of things. And that really helped me grow to realize here's a guy who's got platinum and gold records, you know, for Don Austin, uh, uh, Jackson Five and Marvin Gaye and what have you. And he don't have, he's not playing an instrument. So that was very helpful to me as I went forward. Wow. Um, when you moved to the West Coast, was it a complete leap of faith or did you have a lead on something at that point? Our lead was Hal Davis. Okay. That when we decided to go. Now, when we went, we went from Dayton, Ohio to Kansas City, uh, did a couple of weeks of uh, performing there. And then we drove from uh, Kansas City to Los Angeles. So uh, that uh, is how that happened, how that transferred into doing studio work, background vocals. We did some uh, vocal arranging with uh, the Fifth Dimension. And uh, we, we established a, a, a lot of the pictures for our platypus project was taken by Lamont McLemore, who also was a professional photographer. And for years, he took pictures for Jet Magazine. And he would, uh, some of the attractive ladies that would be in there, he was taking pictures of them. And we come to find that out. And uh, he took, I did a photo session for Platypus. And a lot of those pictures were used um, for that first album and for the remake that uh, Big Break Records, they reissued the CD um, platypus CD back in about 19, I'm sorry, 2012 or 2013. And a lot of the pictures that he took was used in that, well, for that. Now, when you were singing those backgrounds, uh, were those credited or uncredited in most cases? We were credited um, a lot of cases. Uh, <clears throat> what we tried to do at back at that time um, we would say a, a background vocals by platypus because we were pushing, you know, uh, what we were trying to do as opposed to saying Arthur Stokes or Carrie Rutledge or Dana Myers, you know. And so if a person saw that, that would be helpful to the group as we moved up the ladder trying to secure a record deal. So platypus, I assume you picked that name because you wanted to bring in a lot of diverse elements into the sound. Is that why? You know what? That's just how it happened. We When we were with Sandy and, and uh, um, Beverly, we were uh, wanting to change the name of the group. And we wanted to get a name that didn't you couldn't add the to it, the temptations, the impressions, the four tops. We wanted something that you and I, I remember we had a meeting and we was coming up with names and Beverly Smolin said platypus. Just kind of blurted it out. And it was hard. You could put a the on that, but it really stands alone just saying platypus. And we kind of thought the name had a ring to it and everything, not knowing how uh, it was a mixture of things, you know, of animals. And that's how our music ended up uh, having that sound. And interesting enough, when we went to Japan, uh, they uh, called us between rock and soul. And it's, it's just so much interesting how 
things when you move around and deal with people and situations, you grab things that people, that was what they, that's how they advertised this, you know, between rock and soul. And I said, you know what? That's right. They was, they was dead on it, you know? Yeah. But yes, uh, that's uh, how it was. It was not planned like that, but it was ironic that as we got going and realized what the platypus was and all of that, this was before we went to Australia. You know, when we go to Australia, we find this is the only place in the world that really have platypuses, you know. And an interesting note about that, when we went down there, they wanted to call us Black Platypus. And they wanted to do that because the name was so common to Australia, they might think it might be a white rock band or something, you know. Oh, okay. So they decided they were saying Black Platypus from Los Angeles, which clearly separated uh, us from it being anything Australian at that time. You know? So when you were Platypus, at least initially, you were still uh, just a vocal group or did you have uh, musicians at that point as part we of We had musicians. Actually, when we were the Four Corners, uh, we had the uh, uh, same musicians, Curtis Sanford, Lloyd Jones, Rock Jones. Uh, Larry Hines, and we had the singers. But once we got, we had played in LA for a little while and we had got to the point we wanted to pull things together. And that was another reason I believe we wanted to change the name from the Four Corners because it was spotlighting just the singers, you know. And um, Platypus, that's kind of, uh, yeah, so the guys was there. Uh, we were already a unit. Um at that time, it was uh, me, Carrie Rutledge, Dana Myers, Floyd Weatherspoon, Curtis Sanford, Lloyd Rock Jones, and Larry Hines. That made up Platypus. Well, from the Four Corners into Platypus, you know. So, um, and that's what we marched forward with, and. Um, you know, it's funny, we started with seven of us, and by the time we got to uh, Casablanca Records, it was four. Larry Hines, uh, may he rest in peace, he recorded everything, but he had leukemia, and he ended up passing. He even signed the, um, he signed the contracts and everything, and he ended up passing. He came in and did some recording at the studio in Cincinnati, and he went back to L.A. and he passed when he was in L.A. So uh, out of seven guys, uh, Floyd, he ended up um, uh, leaving and Dana ended up leaving. And it was me, Carrie, Curdy and Jones, you know, who uh, um, got got to the goal line. <laughs> why, why do you think uh, those other guys left for the most part? Well, you know, um, they had different reasons for leaving, you know, um, they, uh, I know Dana, uh, he, there was some interest with him from, uh, let me think, McDaniels, uh, Gene McDaniels. There you go. Gene McDaniels. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, Gene was a good guy and, uh, he ended up uh, wanting to do some stuff with Dana and, you know, sometimes you people outgrow things. They feel like they want to make another move in another direction. And that, that's what I've come to find out with a lot of groups. Uh, people just decide for whatever the reasons might be that they want to do something else, you know. So um, that's um, 
And then, you know, with the four of us, we just went on and was blessed to, um, I call it getting over the goal line. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what, at what point, you know, around what year, because, you know, Platypus, the first record came out in 79, but at what, you know, what year was it? 76, 77, whatever, when you guys okay. actually were, were performing, you know, and, and maybe sharing original material with people. Well, Floyd, Floyd left about 73. I think he left. We got out in L.A. in March. And I think by, I'm going to say by September, October, Floyd had left. Then we went to Australia. That was the six of us, including Dana. Dana was with us. Probably until about 77, 76, 77, somewhere in there. And then um, the rest of us, we uh, we took it on. <laughs> you know, uh, Carrie started playing guitar. Jones was bass. Curdy was drums. And so it was me and uh, Carrie just basically the main vocals. But that allowed uh, Curdy, Hines, and Jones to start doing some additional vocal work. And uh, we had to work it out, and you always figure out how to work it out. You know? And uh, we was able to get it done, and we, we started recording some music. We came back home at one point, and, uh, well, that was because of Roberta. We relocated to Dayton, but we, I'm, I'm probably all over the place here, but, uh, <laughs> but we, uh, Roberta we met when we was in, uh, um, in Japan, and that's... Uh, Interesting story. I think it was Dickie Bosley, who we had met in Los Angeles from working at Maverick Flats. Maverick Flats was a huge, popular black uh, discotheque nightclub. All of the Soul Train gang dancers and people used to hang out there. Uh, Richard Pryor performed there. The Brothers Johnson, the Whispers, everybody. It, was, it wasn't a huge club, but it was just super popular and had a lot of good entertainment in it. And we met Dick, Dickie Bosley there, and we we was performing uh, in Japan, and he came into the club at the bottom line. Man, what y'all doing over here? He's like, what you doing over here? Well, it turned out his brother was married to uh, Roberta Flack. So he was on the road as Roberta Flack's road manager. And um, so we ran into him and he introduced us to Roberta. He, in fact, he brought Roberta to the club for us to, uh, to hear us. And when she got there that night, we had finished. We had, but we went back up and did about another half hour, 40 minutes of what we do. And she loved the group and decided she wanted to work with us. And we worked together probably a good, um, I'm going to say two to four year period, somewhere in there like that. Because we was in Japan I'm going to say 76, 77, and we recorded our first uh, thing with Casablanca in 79. So that's about a good two, three-year period that we was involved with her. And uh, she um, she did a lot of things to uh, try to uh, help the group. But you know what's funny about life? You know, sometimes it don't matter who it is you're with if it if the if the if the time ain't right, you know, you don't move forward, you know. But she um she did uh she was very helpful to the group in a lot of ways financially 
because you know what you're struggling, rent being due, and no food in the refrigerator because ain't no gigs been happening. And she was wonderful with uh, helping the group to um, keep our nose above water, you know. So at what point were you playing, you know, a lot of original material with the group? You know, that kind of started early because uh, Dana, myself, and Floyd, we had already done some writing for Michael Jackson, you know, with uh, what goes around comes around. And I'm glad it rained. So we were young budding writers and that kind of continued and everybody just kind of got into it. I'm going to say we got one. We did some early recording. I got some. Dana keeps everything, and he's just he has kept. He got tapes and songs of us that what we did things back in the day. I'm going to go back as far as easily 1974, 75. We was dealing with uh, original music, and we started doing some of the stuff on stage. Uh, probably, I'm going to say maybe 76. 77, 78, we used to play Roundabout by Yes. And um, what's interesting about that, um, we introduced Roundabout to the uh, Maverick Flats disco audience. And they used to, uh, they was, got to a point they would hear the song on the radio, but it would, they would think of Platypus, but it was actually Yes that they was hearing because they had, uh, most people had never heard the song. But if you know the song, it has a very upbeat, good groove to it, and it was danceable. So being a discotheque with the soul trained dancers hanging out, they could relate to it because it was up tempo and had a good uh, danceable beat to it. So we, um, Writing uh, music, uh, Hines, Jones, and Curdy absolutely loved Yes, because, and I loved them because of their harmonies, and and they loved them because of their musicianship. And those were things that uh, helped us to also learn to, you know, write things. So, yeah, we, we was doing the uh, um, original music, I'm going to say as far back on stage as... Um, I know by the time we went to Australia, we was doing a few songs that, and I'm sorry, not Australia, uh, Japan. Uh, we were doing a few songs on stage, just tightening them up, figuring some things we wanted to change or tweak, you know. Yeah, so we, we got started um, easily a good three to four years, good before we, you know, got a, a, a recording deal with Casablanca. And I understand you had uh, some or all of basically that first record recorded when you got the deal with Casablanca. Yeah, that's true. What we learned is that it's two ways um, that you can go for a record deal. You could cut it on an eight track or a 16 track. But what generally happens is that when you cut songs downsize the production of the song and a record company decides they love it and want to do it. In a lot of cases, you would re-record the song. Sometime you could match the filling and the groove and everything. And sometime it come out. It don't mean that the song isn't still good, but you don't recapture the moment like you did. <clears throat> so that's one of the reasons that we, 
moved in that direction to do a, a, a 24 track master so that if they liked it, we could go in and do some overdubbing or whatever you had to do to finish it. But you didn't have to try to recapture the moment for what the record company was liking, you know. So that's how that uh, and that's something you learn. We learn. I don't know if everybody learned it, but we learned it, that that's the best way to approach a record company is if you already got to master and all. And if they're liking it, you still might do some tweaking, some overdubbing or whatever. But the magic that the this record company was liking don't have to change. You know, you captured the moment. That's what the record company was liking. So you could just move forward using that same master. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you record that at Fifth Floor Studios? Is that where that was? We recorded that at Fifth Floor. <laughs> the first, uh, uh, that was um, Dancing in the Moonlight, um, was uh, the song that and Street Babies. Me and Larry Hans wrote Dancing in the Moonlight. And I believe uh, Carrie and Larry Hans, maybe Curdy, I'm, I'm not sure, I don't have it in front of me. They wrote Street Babies. But those were the two songs that got assigned at Casablanca. And uh, we recorded those at Fifth Floor Studios in Cincinnati. And um, what's interesting enough, uh, they wanted to uh, put another producer with us. When I talked with Bruce Bird, Bruce Bird was the head of all promotion at that time. Anything you saw on Donna Summer, Kiss, Parliament. Village people, he was signing the checks for the promotional monies. And this was the guy, Bruce Bird, who took a liking to Platypus. So, um, you know, he um, liked the group. And what he did, he wanted to put a producer with us. But we, I, I was talking. I, I said, Bruce, we, we've been... We've been doing a lot of things. We work with some of the some of your top producers. Da, da, da. We really want to do this ourselves. He said, I tell you what, I'll pay for it if you go ahead and finish it, put strings on it, horns on it, whatever you think you need to do. And if I like it, you can produce the first album. So we did, we went in and uh, with, uh, dancing in the moonlight, street babies. I think we had two or three songs we finished up. And as they say, the rest is history. We went on to uh, produce the first album for um, uh, Ed Casablanca. You know, uh, Arthur, I had uh, Gary Platt's been on the show. So uh, we oh, talked a little bit about it. wow, yeah. yes. Gary, yeah. well, you know, he was very much uh, involved with that first project that we did at Fifth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he spoke really highly of you guys. He said he had a great time doing that. It was a lot of fun. I haven't seen or talked to Gary in years, but he was a good guy. I do remember him being a very good guy and a fine person to work with. Uh, and I don't know if you knew Wes Boatman. He also worked at the Fifth Floor. He's been on the show, too. Now, who is that? Wes Boatman. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, you know, uh, um, not a lot of people at that time. Uh, and uh, Rich Goldman mm -hmm. was the owner you know, of the studio. And um, what's interesting, he was doing some things. He's uh, went on, he's got an independent thing now that's doing quite well for himself. Um, but Rich was going to LA and he was taking some music out and he, he was, he was around when we was cutting the stuff and he asked if he could take it. 
Well, you know, an octopus got more than one, you know, two arms, you know. So when you're trying to do something, you let as many arms stretch out as want to. And uh, he took it to L.A. and he had some meetings. And uh, long story short, Casablanca heard it and um, loved it. And uh, we went on to sign. Yeah. How excited were you when you found out you got a deal? Oh, you know, through the roof, exciting. You know, what's interesting, it's like if you're playing football or basketball, it doesn't matter if you're in the uh, the junior leagues right below. You know, that's still an accomplishment. But to actually sign with a major company, see, because you I mean, there's a lot of people that sign with smaller companies and they might uh, eventually end up with a major, which is what everybody wants. But that it was a major coup uh, to be with because Casablanca at that time was like on top of the world. I mean, they had village people, parliament, Funkadelic, Cher, um, uh, Donna Summer, Kiss. Uh, it was just rolling. Absolutely. Yeah. That um, was great. My sister actually uh, did publicity work there for a time. Um, like around 76, 77. Yeah. Wow. Well, yeah. there's a great chance we might have ran across your sister, you know, in the offices up there. Yeah, that was uh that was a special time. And just a close-knit company and uh sitting right up there on uh, Sunset Boulevard and uh Arthur, I wanted to mention uh some tracks in particular that uh I especially like, you know, being a funk guy like I am. You know, Sweet Babies, I felt like definitely had some Ohio players influence. Very Street funky. Babies. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's showing the influence that they had. And, um, you know, at the time, the, the Ohio players was on top of the world, you know. And uh, when we signed with uh, uh, Casablanca, in fact, you know, Satch was interested in signing the group at the time. He had She Records. That was uh, um, phase over. Mm-hmm. for that and um a uh, solar had contacted us uh dick griffey and and um leon silvers but uh this you know we went with uh, uh casablanca because i mean they was rolling you know so uh, hey let's go with let's go where we can go you know but yeah um the the ohio uh, players influence was there and um <laughs> You know, Larry loved uh, uh, Sugarfoot and used to hang around Sugarfoot and what have you. And we all did. You know, I mean, Foot was a cool brother. And, you know, they always see the other people coming along, you know, that they think uh, got a little moxie to them, you know. So, uh, yeah. So if it's there, (laughs) it's because we were all from Dayton, Ohio. and, And the Ohio players was the um person or or group that everybody was looking up to absolutely and then running from love that's the hot track too some good guitar running from love i'm going to tell you what's interesting about that song that's one of my favorite and you talk about larry hines um when he was got real ill he came back to finish up some of his guitar work 
And we had, after he passed, we had um, a wake in Dayton. And that night we had to go to fifth, drive the fifth floor from when we finished with that to work on tracks because we was trying to get it together and finished for it to be released and had to sit and listen to him sing and play. And he did, I mean, that, that guitar work is, he's just phenomenal on that track, you know. I mean, he was getting it done. But yeah, that's one of my favorite tracks. And uh, wow. So I'm glad uh, to find, I know there's other people that like it, but that's one of my favorites for sure. Lots of thumping bass too, just on the record in oh, general. Yeah. You know? yeah. 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 Jones was, uh, he was in charge of all bass, bass pedals, bass key, keyboards, bass guitar. And he was always, and a great showman, great showman on stage. Um, yeah. So he, he did, he did some great work. How do you and the rest of the guys feel about, you know, how the project came out when it was released? You know, um, I understand, you know, you're hoping for it to maybe sell more and get more attention, but how do you feel about the product itself? We were very excited about the product. I think, and I told you uh, when we talked earlier, uh, Joyce, you did an interview with her and she talked about, and when, and I related to her talking about um, Mother's Finest and how they didn't really sometimes know what to do with them because of uh, their approach to music, their love for certain things and how they were presenting their, their music. Well, Platypus was in the same boat. You know, um, based on, you know, because generally, if you're white, you're pop, you're country, you know, if you're black, you're R&B, you're funk, you're blues, you know. So that's what the, the, the record companies struggled with, because Platypus and Mother's Finest didn't fit that mold, you know. And it, so in uh, getting back to your question I, we was very proud of it, but it turned out the, the record company didn't quite know because Dancing in the Moonlight was the first release. And Dancing in the Moonlight was about as pop sounding as music can get, okay? And it had the elements of R&B in it and uh, funk, but it was clearly a, uh, a pop a song. And I think that they struggled with that, getting it on, you know, to radio. Um, when you got a black group sounding pop, you know, you go on R&B radio to form to play it. And then you go to a, a, a white radio to play it because it has a pop sound, but it's a black group and they don't know how people. So that's what we, we were kind of caught in that same thing, you know, I think with them. Uh, companies see today as as uh, uh, Joy said, um, it, it's it's no problem with it now, but at that time, I think a record company struggled with it, and I don't think the public was uh, as um, open. Well, from what I heard about Prince, man, people throwing stuff at him on stage, you know, yeah. He, be one of the biggest uh, uh, artists in the world, but they wasn't ready for him in his early days. You know? No, this that was only two years after the platypus debut. So, I mean, it was not far from that. Yeah. 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 So, um, 
And uh, so, yeah, um, I think that's what it was. Um, Sometimes they say people are before their time, you know, whether it's in whatever it's in. And I can, I, w- I would say uh, maybe that would apply to platypus because once again, our music ended up being like the uh, the duck bill platypus. It was a mixture of a few things all making one particular thing. And uh, yeah. Did you guys play uh, any tours or spotlight shows off of the first record? What happened with we, the... Uh... We did some... Um, we did some dates. We didn't do a lot of touring, but we did dates in uh, kind of in the uh, area and in, in the region. I'll put it like that. Um, we didn't uh, hook up on a major tour or anything like that. But we did do some dates where we worked with some groups, you know, Bar K's or Group Sky or somebody like that, you know. But um, no, we never got uh, into that. There's much more to this great Truth and Rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also, be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends. And become a member by joining Truth and Rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.